Welcome back to the Attention Podcast. I'm Dan Sanchez with Sweetfish, and today I'm here with Cassidy Shield, who is the SVP of Marketing and Sales at Narrative Science. Cassidy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. Today, we're going to be talking about how audience development is the modern PR strategy. And to kick it off, Cassidy, I want to start with this one question. In a digital age, is traditional PR still effective? Is it even still relevant today? I think it depends on what company you're in and kind of the life cycle of that company. I do think in specific instances, PR is still valuable. But on the other hand, I would say for 95% of at least B2B companies out there, it's not. And we can get into why I think that. But only in select cases have I seen it actually valuable to an organization. And for most of us, I would say the answer is no. So before we dive into like what the 95% should be doing, we're like who's in that 5% real quick so we can get the rest to kind of like self-select out of that? Who's who's in that five? Well, I think, you know, you're going to have large companies who are market leaders who need and are going to have a, a big PR team and a, and a heavy strategy. And so I'll give an example. I'm at, I was at Narrative Science. We got acquired by Salesforce and Tableau. Of course, Salesforce and Tableau have a, a PR team, and as well they should, because they're doing a lot of having a lot of impact on the world, and so that makes a lot of sense. But the most of us, and the folks listening, and my time at Narrative Science, we're in a small company trying to drive change, and and as cool as we think our stories are, they're not really for mass consumption, which is how I would have to think about uh, PR strategy. Is like, are you really changing the world? Do you have proof points of that? Is it a story that kind of resonates across demographics and segments. And for most of us, the answer is no. So essentially you have to be a big company. In general, what's the big company size? You know, like we talking like unicorn and up or is it like hundred million and up? Like generally, like we're throwing, this is like huge ballpark. Two dimensions, I would say, <laughs> yes. You have to be a company that's a marketer category leader or you're at the size where you know, for whatever reason, you're on your fifth or sixth channel and PR is not one of them and you, and that's an important thing to you. Or there are going to be companies where what you're doing may impact and change in how we perceive something that all of us care about. Think of that as education, energy, healthcare, et cetera. And so there could be instances where if that's what you're doing and you try to drive a fundamental change in how we see the world and kind of five or six different categories that maybe it is important for you to be out there or you're a consumer-oriented brand and or you're a consumer-oriented brand and you need to like drive kind of awareness in the consumer market. But most of us aren't that. Okay. I'm sure we have a few people listening that are like, well, but I want to be the category definer. So does that mean I should start with PR? You know, they they just raise their first round. They're like, we're going to change the industry. Because I think a lot of people are thinking that, but like... Is, is PR the way to break through then to, to get there? Yeah, I mean, let's outline what that, that actually looks like, the status quo, because we, we face this, this question at Narrative Science. So you're going to go off and you're going to find an agency. I would say for an agency kind of worth its salt, you're going to spend 15 grand a month at the minimum, likely higher than that um, to get the attention of like the heavy hitters. You're going to need something to say that's relevant for a pretty big audience. You're going to have to spend time building relationships 
So while your PR agency may have relationships, you likely don't as a company. This means you'll spend three to four to five months getting the agency up to speed on your story and working out your story and finding your proof points. You're going to need to start with, let's call it second or third tier media and get your feet wet with the story before you get to what you really want, which is, you know, Wired, New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, which rarely happens. And so what you're in for is a road that probably takes 18 months to two years at 15 to 20 grand a month. Your output tangibly is going to be maybe a story a quarter in a tier two or tier three publication until you get lucky. And it's going to require a lot of time from your CEO, your head of marketing to do that. And so when you look at kind of that reality uh, versus the effort you need to put into it, you got to ask yourself, you just got to be brutally honest with yourself. And that is, why would I want to do that? Oh my goodness. I don't think I've ever like looked at it that way. I mean, you're talking like 45 grand an article. <laughs> I could just to me, I'm like thinking about all the things I could spend money on for 45 grand. And you think about you get yourself in an article and then you say, okay, did who came to my site? I'm gonna see this bounce in traffic to my site. And you don't even, it's not even a blip on the radar. And then you go find out like these. These outlets, these media outlets, even, you know, the second, let's take a second or third tier outlet. They're pumping out so much content every day. You're like one article and maybe 10 or 15 things being put out a day. And the readership of that is actually ends up being quite low. And the number of people who read it, they check you out is almost, for all practical purposes, is zero. I'd maintain even when you hit one of the tier one publications, you should ask yourself, like, does that really actually move the needle? And I wouldn't be surprised if the answer is actually no. Even though it makes you feel good, your investors love you. The CEO is like, I'm so proud. I was in this tier one media publication. The board's patting them on the back. Your investors are happy. Your employees are happy. And in some cases, if that's the reason you're doing PR is to make your stakeholders happy, then okay. But that's a pretty expensive proposition to make all those folks happy. Um, when the reality is it's not moving the needle on your business. I mean, I'd be happy if I got mentioned in any one of those publications and it would be like a, yeah, moment, but at 45 grand a pop, I don't know if I'd be so happy. <laughs> so you guys did a test with this. Is this what you found? I know you did a test early on in narrative science when you first uh, first started your journey there. Is that kind of what you saw? Did you get mentioned in any media or did, did you spend a lot of money for a couple of months and it just, you didn't get anything? Yeah, Think of this in two ways. The company started 10 years ago and well before I showed up, I was there for the last three years. Early in the company's history, PR was an effective strategy. The reason it was effective was it was a very different world back then versus the world we're in today. That's one. And two, the company did pioneering, uh, had a pioneering kind of tech story, which was basically machines are going to generate content instead of people. So they had this story, which was fairly provocative and universal in that you know, your media outlets will be creating stories generated by AI, not by humans. And so they got a lot of PR coverage, and that was great for the company back in its early days. And, and in that case, if you have one of those stories, and it's that point in time when there's not a, as much choice for readership, it worked very effectively. Now, a couple of pivots later, we have to evaluate that situation in the last couple of years. Now, 
it's logical that the CEO would be like, why wouldn't we use PR again? And so we did that test. We hired an agency. We're at it for six to nine months. We got put into some publications. Now our story changed. It was a little bit more narrow. It was about like disruption in the analytics market. And, you know, while we think that's profound and interesting, it's not that profound and interesting to the vast majority of people out there. And in fact, the only people we really want it to be interesting to are the people we want to sell to. And so a lot of what I articulated was because of the experience we went through. We gave it a shot. We tested it. Can't blame us on the agency. They did their job, but the results just weren't there. And so we shut it off. Now, that was the hypothesis that it wouldn't generate results. But we put an effort into trying to make that happen to see if we could disprove that hypothesis. And, you know, the reality is uh, it was proven accurate. So once that didn't quite work out, what did you guys do afterwards? Yeah, so very similar to like what I think the purpose of this podcast was, is we want to take uh, creating awareness and building an audience into our own hands. You know, if you think about that world of using PR, you're kind of beholden to the agency helping you build an audience, you don't have that control. And so what we said is, listen, how can we do that? We want to build an audience with data and analytics leaders. Why can't we do that ourselves? And that was the strategy we set forth um, in terms of kind of building our own community based on content where we would engage directly with the audience of folks that we want to engage with provide value to them, build relationships with them, i.e. create awareness of who we are. We didn't sell to this community, but if they needed something that we could do, they will figure out how to get to us, was our philosophy. But the first, you know, before somebody buys something from you, they need to be aware of you. And that was kind of the whole genesis around our strategy and building kind of a community, a content-based community. So I'm sure at that time, you guys probably were already producing some owned media pieces. You probably had a blog and were posting there. We're probably posting it to social media. It's three years ago, right? So these were kind of normal things most company, probably narrative science, was was doing. What kind of shift did you make in order to be like, no, we want to do this more intentionally? Like, what kind of channels did you look at? And what did you look at as far as like how you approach those channels differently than you had been before? Yeah, we were doing, when I first showed up, and even the first year I was there, we were doing the classic thing that everybody does. We had a blog, we wrote articles, we thought they were interesting. But we actually wrote them, you know, one, one degree removed from what we did as a company. We thought they were independent, but they really weren't. It was just more of like a product pitch. We'd put those out on our own organic channels and we'd give them the sales team and they can push it out to our customers. And like nobody read them. And that's where I think most of us, Classic. you know, most of, <laughs> yeah, the industry is. So we knew we, we needed to kind of figure out a new way. Interestingly enough, this was around the same time that COVID hit. And so we did two things that kind of jumpstart this. We, we wrote our own book, stole this idea from Drift. We wrote our own book. And that book was basically how to tell stories. So it's for a company to train their employees how to be data storytellers or how to be storytellers, not data storytellers, just storytellers. And it was all about letting your people be people. That was the name of the book. So we created that as kind of a way to kind of get started. We gave that away, hardback, electronic, to all our customers and anybody else who wanted it. We went out and we promoted that and so forth. That was kind of step one. 
the second thing that happened was obviously COVID threw our marketing strategy up in the air like everybody else. And around that time, we're going through creating, kind of defining what this kind of category is we want to create that we are going to disrupt the analytics market with. And what we decided was, let's try to throw our own event, invite people interested in this topic to come here from other experts in the industry. And the, this, this was around data storytelling. And we end up throwing our first event four to six weeks after COVID hit. And when we set out, we didn't know how to do that. We didn't know who was going to show up. We we're like maybe 500 people show up, maybe 1,000, and we end up getting 4,000. And we got a lot of great feedback, uh, which was, you know, thanks for putting this together. I learned a lot. Now, we weren't promoting what we did at all in this show, in this event. It was all about the community and giving back to them. And so we kind of lucked into that. If you think about that strategy now, it may not work just because we're kind of fatigued with online events. But at that time, everybody was looking for a way to kind of interact with each other when you couldn't do it face-to-face. And so we took that strategy and we multiplied, you know, we did it three more times for various targeted audiences, all with the idea of expanding our community by creating a place that people could congregate, that we could create content that we could share back with the community, build our newsletter and distribution lists and so forth and so on. And so that just transformed our thinking around how we would go about doing this uh, because we saw some success. You know, obviously we launched a podcast with the help of Sweetfish as another avenue. And in that podcast, it was very simple. We want to hear from people driving change with data. So let's go interview them. And then let's make them the hero. Let's share their stories with others in the community and so forth and so on. And so as we started doing these, we're, we're building awareness. We're building an audience. And the idea would be if we can provide the value that this audience wants and we can, and this is our way to participate in the community, good things will happen. So you have virtual events going. You have a podcast. What are some of the things you do to grow the audience from event to event and episode to episode in order to kind of get a rising, I don't know, to see that the audience grow larger and larger over time? We did most of this organically with select paid channels. And so what I mean by that is uh, two things. On the event side, we'd have a small budget to kind of goose attendance on paid social, LinkedIn, Facebook. We had kind of a separate strategy of kind of building awareness on those channels that wasn't content-driven. And we augmented that with a content-driven approach to kind of building community awareness. And that would be attracting people to the events. So that's kind of one strategy. So it's largely organic. Uh, augmented with paid social. Over time, as we created content, we would turn that content back into, let's call them ebooks and other things that would be valuable. And we would pump that back through the same strategy. And that strategy would be predominantly organic as we build our following, but we'd augment that as well with kind of a paid social strategy to kind of just bring new people into the community who may not be aware and so this idea of kind of effectively goosing your content and community uh, with paid amplification is something that we didn't spend the bulk of our money on, but we did it enough to kind of provide value and kind of goose like the, the growing of those communities, if that makes any sense. No, it's, it's really 
interesting model. And essentially, you're, you got paid on the front end, big event that produces all of your long-form content. And then you take that long-form content, slice it and dice it up into different t- content that's contextual to all the different social platforms. Is that about right? That's about right. So and like we would do majority event, of that would be, yeah, majority of that we try to do organically because we didn't have a lot of money. But we would selectively put money behind certain things that we saw that were performing well to kind of amplify it. And did you use the organic stuff you were posting to kind of like build momentum for the next event? Or did you just kind of like let that trickle out to farther the message? I would have liked to think that we were smart enough to do it event to event. But it was largely the latter of just keeping the storyline going and the engagement going with something interesting to say and something helpful to the community that wasn't like buy our product. We made a few mistakes along the way that like in hindsight, when we look back, we probably would have did it much more how you would ask the question, Dan, which was, can we do this more systematically event to event? But, you know, you live and learn these things as you go. It's an interesting approach doing the the event, which I'm not a huge fan of live events just because I think I'm so used to podcasting and being able to like edit stuff out and clean up my own audio and the silly words that I'm injecting or when I'm repeating things over and over again and it just can be cleaned up. But there is a power to it. It's, it becomes, at least I feel like it's a bit of a forcing function. I imagine, like I did a webinar uh, like a, a week, week and a half ago on audience growth. And I knew I'm like, as much as I'll promote it on organic and we promote it a lot, you know, I think a hundred people registered, 50 plus people showed up, which was a pretty good rate of uh, people who showed up uh, who registered. Ultimately, I'm like, this is going to force me to think through the content, record it, and now I have a recording that I can slice and dice up afterwards. It's almost like any attention you get in it is sprinkles on the cake. The cake is the content. And what you can do with it later for all your organic promotion. Because coming up with the content's the hard part. But it could be useful for that. Would you think that would be worthwhile if people are like, oh, I don't know how many people I can get to register, that it'd be worthwhile putting together maybe a couple of subject matter experts and doing a quick like workshop with some live troubleshoot, like helping, helping their customers figure things out live on the call just for the content alone? Yeah, I mean, this is how we actually, this is the part we, I think, did pretty well. We went into the event setting up the format to reuse the content in the future. And that could be how we moderate a panel. That could be me one-on-one interviewing somebody at the event that we would then use on social, cut up, but also back in as a future episode on the podcast for those people who weren't at the event. And so we actually went into the event with the idea that this wasn't about the event. It was about to your point, the content and how do we use it and carry it forth beyond the event. And so that's a bit I think we did well. So yes, we wanted people to be there in the event because you want your speakers and your guests to not be having a conversation with nobody listening. For sure, for sure. You got to get, you got to take the best swing yeah. you can take, right? Otherwise it's, it's, you might as well just be showing up to a studio and just recording, but right. yeah. Um, and you love the interaction with the audience which oh, yeah. you have and so forth and so on. But the, the real value, to your point, was like the content and what you did with it afterwards. Uh, did you find you got good traction with the guests you invited to come and speak and them sharing it later with like their their audiences? Uh, it was, I would call it, to be honest, it was mixed. I think the people who are comfortable doing that already, absolutely. And I remember one of our 
first few events, we we invited some big brands like Drift to come speak and others, and they did an amazing job at promotion ahead of the event and after the event. You know, and then others, which is kind of the beauty of this from an authentic perspective, they weren't professional speakers. So like some people just don't have an audience after the fact, but they have something really interesting to say. So we took that upon ourselves to be the ones promoting that content for those guests. So there's a little bit of both. If, if they were well-versed in putting out their own content and promoting things they did, they absolutely used it and did a great job. If they weren't, then that's where we would help do it um, for them. Yep. It's about my experience as well with uh, being a podcast host. Some guests promote, some don't. As much as you can slice and dice it and like pre-write the tweets and graphics for them, it's kind of like, eh, some don't need it, some don't care. Some are just happy to be a guest. How did it help doing all these things uh, essentially growing an audience with the events and with the podcast, how did it bring brand awareness to narrative science? What was some of the things that you had planned for? And were there any, was there anything like shocking after you did it that was just kind of surprising to you? What I think it's been, so first of all, I, this kind of coincided with the strategy we built, which was all inbound. And so we relied on kind of demand pipeline generation to come from marketing. So obviously we needed this helped us kind of build that awareness and then as among as other things that we did. But I think it's the, it's the subtle things that you hear. Like the more people I meet in the community who may have not shown up in an event or who I've never met and they like know who we are and they knew what we stood for. And they would say, Hey, I listened to this great, you know, podcast. I saw this video on LinkedIn or you guys are all over the place on LinkedIn. We'd hear that all the time. You know, and we're a company that has 80 people. And we're hearing that from the audience that we care about, that matters to us, playing that back. And so when you hear those things, you're like, all right, well, maybe I can't measure that in a system. Um, Maybe I can't directly attribute that to revenue, but I can feel like the things that we're doing are creating value for others and building awareness of who we are. Do you ask people where... Inbound, as they come inbound and schedule demos and different things, or you just talk to them as they're onboarding, do they mention things like, oh, yeah, I listened to the podcast. Oh, yeah, I went to a virtual event. They're probably mentioning it a lot, I'd imagine. They do. We, we've trained our sales team to ask those questions, and we would record them and gong. And back when we're running events, we would hear about, they, they saw they came to one of our events. That's where they learned. We've heard about the podcast. They've heard about, we've seen you guys on social. Sometimes it's like, I got to, we got a paid ad on Instagram. That's how we found you. But all the things that you're doing, all the different things that we're doing, we've heard from inbound prospects coming in, the success of those things. And so that's good to hear. Like, um, that's what you'd expect. And that's, we really, we really put more weight into that than we would put into like, what does uh, Google Analytics tell us? Or what does Marketo tell us as far as the source goes? For sure. I like Google Analytics and we use HubSpot. So what HubSpot tells us, but at the end of the day, like the self-reported, where did you hear about us from is just so much, so much better. I know we use that at Sweetfish and it's amazing. People are like, oh yeah, first found out about you guys on LinkedIn and, you know, and then we became a podcast subscriber or something like that. You kind of, kind of see the journey over and over again. So, so Dan, maybe you're about ready to ask a question, but maybe if I just sort of take this back to our comparison to PR. Absolutely. So we ran four events. We had I don't know, 10 to 12,000 people register for the events. We have, we have 70 episodes of the podcast and, you know, tens of thousands of listens. We have a newsletter of 
10 or 12,000 people on it that we take our content and put back out to it. We have all this content on LinkedIn that you talked about repurposing and putting out. So we've grown our audiences on those platforms and our engagement. I know it's very important here, not just the size of the audience, but the engagement on these channels has grown dramatically. And so if you look at the co- all that and you know how much should we spend to do that? Substantially less than $15,000 a month. And you go compare that to where we would have been over the last few years in PR. We may have gotten seven articles published and maybe if we're lucky, we're one of the five or 10%, we might've landed after two years a tier one publication. And we would have spent whatever, 15 grand a month, you know, times two years. And you look at that comparison and you're like, what would you rather have? It's, it's a stark difference. It's dramatic. And so, I mean, that's really what I'm saying here when I think of what you're trying to promote around building an audience and all the modern ways of doing that versus like the old way we used to think about doing this. So your, your media impressions just through owned media alone are probably through the roof compared to what you would have gotten in earned media with the PR agency. But I want to know, like, how did it even affect, like you're getting earned media as a result. I know you've been a guest on B2B Growth. You're a guest on this show now. You've probably been a guest on a lot of other podcasts and they've probably gotten media mentions somewhere out there from things that aren't your owned media. They're other people's media. How has that been impacted by all the stuff that you're doing with owned? You know, I'm going to surprise you a little bit as a person who's like analytical. And that is, I don't even measure it because I know it'll work. And so, you know, part of our strategy is taking our people and I'm one of them and just going out there and providing value and once in a while telling our story. But you know how we want this to work. People watch this, like, who's this guy Dan talked to? What's this company? They look us up. They file that away in the back of their head and they say, well, listen, if that seems interesting, if I ever need something like that, maybe I'll look this company up. And what we've noticed is like, based on the interactions we've had and the people we've met, that that's working. Now, it may take a while for that to translate into revenue and maybe it never does. But, you know, awareness isn't about like just selling to the people who want to buy your stuff now. It's about building relationships with people for the future. And that's the belief. And it's kind of, we took the long game towards doing that. You think you might've earned more earned media attention from your, the stuff you're doing with owned media than you would have, have gone the more traditional route? Absolutely. And you can think of this in two ways. There's uh, the kind of classic way of kind of measuring this in kind of audience size. But I don't think that does it justice. Because if you think about what does it look like in the old world? It's like somebody read an article or clicked on a link and may or may not read it. And you never know. To this world, which is, I just listened to this guy for 45 minutes on a podcast. Or I went to an event and I spent three hours at one of their events. Or I follow and read what this company or this person posts on LinkedIn every day. So one, you can't, It's hard to measure that in its totality, but it's even harder to take into account the length of engagement with that content versus what you would see in kind of your traditional channels. And so if you were to somehow measure that together, I think you would see 50x improvement, maybe even higher. (laughs) I mean, you guys have done exceptionally well. I remember... It was from your events. I believe you invited James to speak in an event and I found out about it. And of course, we probably had you on 
B2B growth not long afterwards. And then a relationship was built. I'm sure we've had a number of interactions and content collaborations since then. But it's because you had the event that Sweetfish became aware of you. So, and it's been fun. I'm sure it's happened to a lot of people where you, they were guests or they found out about you through those events and then start to learn and grow more familiar with what you actually do. Because you came for the event, but then you start to go down the funnel because people aren't, I don't know, people are smart. They kind of figure out like, oh, who's putting this on? What's going on? So it's clearly working. And you think about like, it kind of works both directions. Like James, I remember that, that session. He absolutely crushed it. It was like one of the best sessions we had at that event. But along the way, we get to know James and we get to know what your company's about. And he, you know, he did a favor for us to be at that event. So like the relationships to the point where that's what you want out of these interactions. So if I need a sweet fish meeting in the future, I call James because we have that relationship and that's what you're trying to do both ways and building a modern community is uh, you, you figure out a level of trust and kind of familiarity with uh, the people you're engaging with. And sometimes that will translate into businesses and sometimes it won't, but like that's all why we're doing this. There's a whole nother element of community building when it comes to audience growth. I don't know if you necessarily have to build a community in order to build an audience. It's possible, but it sure is a heck of a lot more fun <laughs> and rewarding. And I'd say would accelerate audience growth to actually build community and relationships with the people that you're working with. They helping you, you helping them. It just, it goes a little bit much farther, but that's another topic for another episode. Is there anything I left on the table that you'd like to add to this audience growth as a new way to do modern PR? It's a good question. I will say people sometimes get tripped up on this idea of, um, am I building an audience of people who use my product or am I building an audience with people just in the market or industry that I'm interested in? And both are effective, but you should think of these strategies as very different. This is the company I'm in today, Salesforce and Tableau, amazing communities largely a bit about built around people who've been successful using their product. That's a great strategy. Like you can't, like everybody would be love to be in that position. But as an 80 person startup, like, like that community would be very small. And so for us, our decision was we wanted to participate in the larger community beyond the people who use our product. How can we provide value to those folks? And what are the things that we could do from a, kind of a way to step into those communities and kind of be a part of it. And that's kind of how we thought about it. What's the value we can bring? And I feel like that's just a modern way that every startup or every small company or venture should be thinking about you know, their marketing and their awareness and their brand building strategy. Well, Cassidy, thank you so much for joining me on the Attention Podcast. Where can people go to learn more about you and Narrative Science Online if they, if they want to learn more? You can find me on LinkedIn, Cassidy Shield. I'm out there every day. If you want to learn more about narrative science, you can go to narrativescience.com. Fantastic. Thanks again for joining me today. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it.